Welcome to a new edition of the Bighorn Podcast. We continue to bring to you the interesting people and their extraordinary stories that come from members of our community. We have talked over the last five years about the twists and turns that we all go through in our lives that bring us to Bighorn and the life we are able to share. I have been honored to be part of bringing to you these stories in the words and feelings of the people who have lived these life experiences that can inspire, educate, emotionally touch us in a very personal way. These stories make up the fabric of our community and bring us closer together. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's episode is brought to you with the generous support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, who have been a valued member of our community for over 75 years, with their beautiful store on El Paseo and the Jewel Box store in the Bighorn Clubhouse. Bighorn Properties. The Bighorn Properties team, with more than three decades of knowledge and experience, is uniquely positioned to represent your real estate needs. Back Nine Greens, another locally owned company with strong ties to our community with a product line that is known worldwide. They really make works of art. And Corliss Estate Wine, where time and reverence for old world techniques using new world fruit set their wines apart. Try their fine product in the poorhouse and the steakhouse. Today we will hear from Jack Whitland, who with his wife Gail have been members of our community since 2004. Jack's professional career spanning nearly 40 years with Deloitte a worldwide accounting and consulting company where his leadership and accomplishments are honored and recognized throughout the business world. I believe we are in for an interesting and educational ride. Before we get into the professional accomplishments, let's get into the early years, which start in Chicago, Illinois. Jack, take us on your journey. Thanks, Marty. I was born in 1951. We lived in downtown Chicago, about three or four blocks from Wrigley Field. It was a great time to grow up in uh, Chicago at that time. It was very safe. It was a time where baseball was great at Wrigley Field. The Bears played at Wrigley Field. Um, a lot of sports were all around us. My dad, my mom, my grandmother lived with us, and I had a younger brother, Barry, who also, we shared a room together in an apartment on Lakeshore Drive. We spent summers in southern Wisconsin at a little resort town called Nippersink. It was sort of like a Catskills kind of place. Jewish families typically brought their families up to this hotel. About 100 modest homes up there. Nice little community. And actually, that's where I met my wife, Gail. We actually grew up together. We didn't really meet each other. I was very short, about 4'10 or so. I was a freshman in high school. Gail was the height she is now, probably five, six or so. So until I got to at least her height, the odds of me having a date with her were rather small. But finally, when Gail was 16, I was 18, we actually started going out a little bit. Right now, it's been about 54 years we've been together, married almost 48 years. All I could say is I'm the luckiest person I know for having somebody as beautiful and talented as she is. While I was gallivanting around the world, 
she did a fabulous job of being the primary uh, raiser of our children, quite frankly. And I think the proof is in the outcome. Our son Brian graduated Lehigh, was president of class at Lehigh, and, and gave the commencement speech. He then went on to Stanford and graduated first in his class in engineering and has built and sold four companies as a gallery artist, a renowned disc jockey. You know, I give a lot of credit to Gail for dealing with uh, matters of the heart and matters of health to get such a talented person to achieve so much. Our daughter went to University of Colorado. She studied business, very successful as well. She's an executive in Silicon Valley. Besides doing that, is a, is a mother to a, a couple of great kids. So again, Yale's done a great job with both families. By the way, our son has a fal very talented son as well. In addition to the two kids who are ours, so to speak, while not adopted, we have two other boys that we have been involved actively with in their lives, and Gail's played an important role. The first situation was Gail had a cousin who struggled and eventually sort of abandoned six of, of their kids. We took one of the boys, Daniel, when he was in high school, a little bit troubled, a little bit definitely behind in school. Our kids helped out. We got him into a junior college in Southern Illinois, became a dental hygienist, one of my friends, Steve Sanders helped him get his first job in dental hygiene with a pediatric practice. Did that for several years. Went back to college, supported him then. And this past year, sort of a miracle, he graduated University of Kentucky Dental School and is now a dentist in a thriving practice. The other child was a guy named Ron. Ron was our son's roommate in college. His father was never in the picture. His mom passed away, unfortunately. Ron would stay at our house and learn more about where I worked at Deloitte. And surprisingly, even though he was an engineer, said, I want to work at Deloitte. After going back and getting some more education and business, Ron came to work at Deloitte in New York in financial services. I was leading financial services at the time in the, in the U.S. and in the globe. Worked with us for several years, wound up going to J.P. Morgan Chase. From there, he went on to BlackRock. Today, he's a partner at BlackRock with about 500 people reporting to him. And his wife is head of pediatric surgery at Mount Sinai. While not legally our kids, we feel very much like they are our children. And I think the special nature of what Gail's done with those kids to, again, dealing with matters of the heart, primary, the heart and health. And I tend to deal with the business side of, of helping all these kids through has been uh, something very important to us. Jack, thanks for sharing a very personal story about your family, the family dynamic, how you've integrated the various aspects of that into your life. I'd also like to just talk some more about those early days in Chicago, about your mom and dad. My mom, who was club champ at a golf course in Chicago, taught us how to play. My father was horrible at it, but my brother and I developed a great liking for the sport. My brother went on to become the real golfer in the family. He's been club champ at three different country clubs. But it was a great time up there, water skiing, very safe environment to do all those crazy things you do as kids and really not hurt yourself too badly. I went to school in Chicago, went to one school from senior kindergarten through high school called Francis Parker, very small school, private school. My parents invested very heavily in education and 
I was a great beneficiary of that. One of my fondest memories of, of that school and a great example of what we learned there was a teacher I had named Bar McCutcheon. He was my math teacher from fourth grade through high school. We never had a textbook. He was a very affluent individual, and his whole life's mission was to take exceptional kids and teach them math. I never knew what exactly we were learning because he didn't have normal words for things. But as I found out later, we pretty much completed all of calculus by the time we hit eighth grade, and most of my high school career was spent learning the different types of infinity and doing mapping theories to prove that there's more points on a line than there are numbers in the world, doing nautical plotting of courses all around the world. Math without textbooks. Now that's foreign to most people right at the very start. You said he was very affluent. How did he decide on teaching as a career to begin with, this wonderful math teacher that you had? I honestly don't know how he picked that, but he was very interested in, like I said, taking kids and teaching them that made you feel comfortable being uncomfortable with complex situations. He always taught us the basics, so it wasn't just using a calculator. They didn't exist at the time. But it was doing mathematical proofs that may go on for pages and pages. And by the way, when you turn in your homework, it had to be on one side of a piece of paper. It had to be done in pen. There could be no mistakes. You had to redo it if you had a mistake. But it was the only thing I ever knew from fourth grade through, through high school. And so it was a great discipline. And I got obviously very comfortable with almost any kind of quantitative question that I faced even today. In high school, I played basketball. I was very small, so I was a guard. I averaged less than two points, say, a game, and probably averaged a 75% shooting percentage, so I didn't shoot very much. I played golf in high school and was captain of the golf team. Again, it's a small school. And I was able to be on student government and do all kinds of different things because of the size of the school. When I graduated the school, I had many college opportunities. My father wanted me to go to Wharton, and I just wanted to be a normal kid. So I went to University of Illinois, joined a fraternity, and for once in my life was in a bigger environment with a bunch of knuckleheads that I really enjoyed. When I was at University of Illinois, I studied accounting, and I passed the CPA exam before I graduated college. From there, I went to the University of Chicago, where when I was 23, I had an MBA in finance and statistics, and had a big career decision to make. I was offered a job at Touche Ross at the time, management consulting, and the University of Chicago offered me a full-ride scholarship to get a PhD in statistics. It was a difficult choice, but I decided to go into this new world called consulting, which was really not even a profession at the time. When I started with Touche Ross, we only had revenues in management consulting of $12 million in the U.S., only 250 employees in the U.S., and I was the 28th person hired in the Chicago office. We tried to work on the most important projects for the most important clients, but when you're that size, you wound up putting in cost accounting systems for metal plating companies. But as our reputation improved, we wound up doing more and more sophisticated projects for sophisticated clients and some of their most important issues. In short order, I was involved with Blue Cross plans. So Blue Cross plans are 
health insurance companies, as we all know. But in the, in the 70s and 80s, they were just coming out of being regulated by state governments. Most of them didn't know how to operate as independent businesses. And very quickly, I was thrown into situations where there were several Blue Cross plans that were going broke. And I had a knack for figuring out how to keep them afloat and how to help them flourish. In many cases, we would have to take control of the companies. I would take over operations. Somebody else would be acting CFO, those kinds of things. And we wound up having to frequently fire people, change over the products, change over the operations, and get them to a state where they could better operate as profitable independent organizations. Probably worked in about a dozen Blue Cross plans across the country doing that. I also wound up working for a large retailer, one of the largest companies in America. And they had a series of complex issues. They were trying to compete against Walmart, struggling to do so. In the case of this particular retailer, they had over 40 people in the back office of each of their stores compared to Walmart that had four. And one of my assignments was to restructure the back office of each of their 856 stores to get them more competitive with Walmart. I also took out about a third of the headquarters and helped them create enough cash to buy themselves more time to figure out how to re-merchandise themselves. I can't talk too much more about that organization, but that was an interesting time. Another big project early on for me, and this was in the early 80s, was the workout of Continental Bank. Continental Bank had failed and some of my partners had been involved in the Penn Square situation, and they brought me in to help with the work out of Continental Bank for the FDIC. The FDIC put in a ton of cash into the Continental Bank and took out $6 billion of troubled loans as collateral, and it was my job to oversee the work out of the $6 billion, probably some of the most complicated and convoluted loans in the world at the time. There was ships in Greece, there was gold mines in Canada. We had tons of oil loans all throughout the South. Working on behalf of the FDIC, the goal was to, as quickly as possible, liquidate the $6 billion of troubled loans that the FDIC had taken on. From that, I wound up spending more time with large insurance companies that were going through some major transformations with regards to their financial systems. Some of the biggest insurance companies in America and the world had homegrown financial systems. For whatever reason, I wound up becoming a specialist in putting in SAP, PeopleSoft, and other big newfangled packages and replacing the entire financial systems of some of the biggest insurance companies in the world. In the 90s, it was my turn to run the Chicago office. I always tried to stay away from managing an office or managing anything because I enjoyed so much spending time with clients, and I thought the power of the firm should always rest with the people that are on the front lines. Senior guys came to me and said, it's your time, and I wound up really enjoying myself building and growing the Chicago office. I think I took over the Chicago office in 1995. We had about 175 people. And four years later, when I stepped down from that responsibility, we had over 800. Tried to build a culture that was uh, supportive of people, obviously growing quickly, having a great time, because we were always competing against people who were getting stock options in the internet business. We were really in the entertainment business for youngsters 
and we'd remind ourselves we had to re-recruit our staff every day. After um, running the Chicago office, I was asked to take over the responsibility for our financial services practice in the U.S. and around the world. So for three years, I had complete responsibility for all the work that Deloitte Consulting did for insurance companies, bank, and security houses worldwide. For three years, I literally flew around the world every month for three years, spending a week in Europe, a week in Asia, and two weeks back in the U.S., primarily working in New York. It was a difficult time because those times encompassed the 9-11 crisis. During 9-11, I was actually in Paris. When I got back to the U.S., I found our financial services partners in particular were incredibly impacted by the World Trade Centers coming down because they all worked in that area. They all lost tremendous numbers of friends in the incident and psychological impact was remarkable on all of them. And I spent probably six months just you know, refocusing our practice to get everybody back to a point where we could function in the same way as we had been before that tragedy. But we grew our financial services practice around the world dramatically during that time. I had a, an unbelievable education working throughout the world with all the different cultures I encountered. After about three years of that, we sort of had a crisis back in the U.S. Turns out that Enron had hit several of the consulting practices for the big eight accounting firms were breaking away and being sold. There was a real uh, fraction between the consulting practice in the world, Tushross and Deloitte, and the audit practice. It was a question of should consulting break away or should consulting stay with the firm? I was brought in with three other guys to basically take over the consulting practice when the decision was made to keep the consulting practice as opposed to separating it. At the time, Enron had hit, and our consulting practice was really not very profitable, and it was pretty ugly in the firm. We were just not pulling our own weight. So the four of us, myself and three other guys, took control of the practice. Practice was probably about a billion and a half dollars in revenue. We stabilized it. And six years later, when the four of us stepped down from the leadership of, of that practice, very proud to have a practice that was $4.5 billion in revenue, really the envy of the consulting industry. But it was time for new leadership. You know, I always think of having the right leaders for the right time. We were the four right leaders for that time. But at that point, it was time for new leadership. We were operators, and now we needed some guys who were more visionary and capable of taking the practice to the next level, while the four of us each took different responsibilities in the firm for the next few years before we each retired. In my case, at that point, I stepped away from being the chief operating officer of the U.S. We had a particular problem in China. We had global projects that might be hundreds of millions of dollars, but if we couldn't deliver the piece in China we would lose the entire piece of business. And that happened to us several times, and I was determined to fix it. So as I stepped down from being chief operating officer in the U.S., we did a joint venture with our Chinese practice, and I became the chairman of the China Consulting Practice. At the time, we had about eight partners, about 300 staff, as I recall, a little over $24 million in revenue. 
but we had a great group of, of the eight partners. China is like the wild, wild west. So I learned quickly to understand as much as I could about the government there, about the big clients that were usually owned by the government. Spend a lot of time with people, build trust. I was amazed at how helpful the Chinese government and these individual businesses would support us if we invested in their communities and brought new ideas. I worked in China every month. I was in China every month for four years. After four years, our practice grew from eight partners to 35 partners, from 300 people to over 1,500 people, from $24 million in revenue to well over $200 million in revenue. And we were recognized by a number of publications as the premier consulting practice in China. And most importantly to the U.S. practice was we had built a capability in China so that we could service the largest global accounts in a quality way and obtain and retain the uh, international projects that we had been losing previously. What sort of acceptance do you get from a company when you have to come in and fire a lot of people and you have to change their policies and, in effect, telling them that they haven't been doing things correctly and they have to, uh, there has to be a new system in place? Is that an adversarial relationship when you come in, and, and how do you handle that? Well, I think you have to take a step back and talk about the bigger picture of what happens if we take action or what happens if we don't take action. There have been conversations, and I was at a retreat with some bunch of leaders, and it was going to be a very difficult situation we were going to, about to face. And my question to them was, why should we do this? In other words, if we do this, we should have a good reason on a positive outcome. Otherwise, we're not going to get everybody to go along with us and make it happen. For example, um, I had a health insurance company on the West Coast that was in dire straits. And we were selling a lot of assets that had more market value than book value to keep them afloat from the perspective of having uh, positive reserves. When I met with the senior executives, we discussed the fact that if we could pull this off, besides surviving, what could we be? One of my partners, more senior than me, came into the room and he had Fortune, a mocked up picture of a Fortune magazine. On it, he had listed this company's name as being the premier insurance company in America. They weren't there now, obviously, but he believed that someday we could be that. That was very powerful. And then the discussion was not about the people we were going to fire or all the changes we had to make. It was, could we get there? And if we got there, what that would be like? And then... What do we have to do to do it? And in this particular case, I don't usually like to mention too many names of clients. The name of the company at the time was called Blue Cross of California. They were broke. A guy named Leonard Schaefer was brought in. Fabulous guy, a little nutty, but very capable. I worked there for several years as a consultant. And we turned the business around. We wound up buying a company called Mass Mutual and John Hancock, the health businesses. We combined them to create a company called WellPoint. And in fact, WellPoint became the premier health insurance company in America. I think, Marty, when you're looking at situations where you have to do something really difficult, you either need to have a burning platform or a gold ring you're going after 
burning platform works for a very short period of time, but if there's a gold ring that's strong enough and it's going to be worth it, then you could make it happen. And if you don't have that, then you really shouldn't even start and try. We're talking about domestically in this particular case. I'm curious, once you're global and you go to these other cultures and you go into each one is a, a different situation, how does that transfer into these cultures that you now have to work at? How do you sell it on a global basis? Well, I think with every individual you meet, everybody wants to get a gold star in life. Okay, it's pretty simple. The trick is, is always to figure out with an individual, not a company, but an individual, what gets them a gold star? And then just help them get a gold star. It's pretty much as simple as that. In situations like in China, as an example, I hired a guy in China who went to Harvard Business School and his roommate was the vice mayor of a town called Harbin, China, which none of us have ever heard of. Harbin's 12 million people. He was his roommate in college had suggested that if Deloitte Consulting opened an office in Harbin, that, that they would have business up there. I went up there with this young partner that we'd hired and said, let's give it a shot. So we opened up a small office and we immediately had some tremendous success. The government and even the Communist Party actually was behind us opening the office because they would get a gold star if people from their Harbin University could work for an international firm. Once I understood that, I went to the professors at Harbin University and I said, I'd like to hire in the next month 20 students who are graduating. And I told them, the only thing I, I would say to them though is, I will judge you by the worst person you recommend, not the best. And if those people aren't good enough, then this will be the end of it. If the kids are, do well, we'll hire more. And we had a tremendous success building our practice along with meeting their objectives of getting their people employed at an international consulting firm. As soon as that started happening, the Bank of Harbin who wanted to become a world-class bank needed for accreditation, needed to have Basel II models. Basel II meaning you have to have credit risk models on all, on all your major credit risks. And most big banks in the U.S. have their own modeling. They didn't have the capabilities. So we built the models. And then once you build the models, you have to build all the data behind it to figure out the flow of data to support the modeling. And, and that was tens and tens of people for years just on that one assignment and then it went on from there. We did work for the, within two weeks, we, we sold that project, a project for the second or third largest communication company in China, which means it's the second or third largest communication company in the world. And one other company, we were off to the races. Once we understood what got them a gold star and the executives, you know, all these other organizations, they were very quick to want to help us. You know, now there's an awful lot of talk, obviously, about the world situation, and specifically China. You have insights that very few people have as far as how that system works and what drives them. I'd be very interested in your comments about how you view the present situation. And China's a very interesting and complex place. I give them a lot of credit for being strategic thinkers in acquiring 
capabilities and controlling resources that the U.S. hasn't thought to do for many years. So, for example, we don't do a lot of mining in the United States. Just don't do it. Canada does some mining. South Africa clearly does mining. Australia. What China figured out, as an example, is that controlling certain precious metals will be very important in the future. I think we're all starting to recognize it now with the electric car situation, that there's lots of materials that'll be necessary to build all these electric cars that are special metals. And if you look to where they are, who controls those now? I mean, the Chinese companies, there's Chinese companies that have built cities in Africa. I'm not just talking about the mines, but they build the entire cities and infrastructure in and around mining these particular materials. I'm familiar with it because one of the assignments that we performed while I was involved in China was to put SAP systems in for the largest non-precious ferrous metal organizations in China. So I got to know a lot more about that particular business and they're putting in tremendous infrastructure to be able to control those kinds of things. So I give them a lot, I have a lot of respect for some of those things. The Chinese very much do understand, and I've met with very senior people, some of their challenges. They know they've got some human rights issues. The guys are very candid about that. They know that they've got issues around uh, intellectual property control. They know that they've got to get control of a lot of the issues that we, we always recognize about people stealing intellectual property. They, they're on top of that. But probably the biggest issue that they're facing it's never talked about here, but they're very conscious of is, is the patronage system. Basically, Chinese companies for years are run by people that are not necessarily the most capable, but they're the most connected. You know, somebody's grandfather was friends with Mao Zedong and those kinds of things. And moving to a meritocracy and away from a patronage system is a very tricky and complex thing for that cultural to tackle. So they're facing a lot of challenges, okay? At the same time, they've, they've got some strategic thinking that they've done in the past to control certain things that makes a lot of sense. I don't understand all of the things going on with all the political things today, but it's a fascinating culture. I give them a lot of credit for certain things. They have a lot of challenges. I think they recognize a lot of challenges in a candid way that they won't talk pu more publicly about, but I've had conversations with them, and but they are powerful for sure. Are we falling further behind all the time? In certain things, I think yes. Some of the controls of some of these minerals, as I was saying before, and probably some other strategic things and other, other ways, I still think a lot of the rate of juices that are important to our future are still very much coming from the U.S., but we still create the environment to encourage it to pay for it, quite frankly. And so I still think that's our advantage. In the business that you help build, and we're instrumental in building, especially in consulting, what's the future of that business today? Remember, I, I started, we had 250 people in the U.S. in consulting, $12 million in revenue. Today, that business is over $15 billion, is well diversified in virtually every industry. The nature of the business problems being dealt with are extremely broad. The capabilities of a firm like Deloitte are capabilities that no other organizations would want to build, you know, just for the specific projects that they'd have who could amass that kind of talent. I'm constantly amazed at it. 
you know, I, I, th- I think it's, you know, the, the profession is, uh, will do great. What, with everything that you've accomplished, what drives you today? What does it look like for you now? I retired actually from Deloitte about eight or nine years ago. I was there for 40 years or so, and, and a few things have happened. Okay, so in terms of, well, one story I'll, I'll just make about, when I was running the Chicago office, there was a woman who came to me, and this is back in the 90s. She says, I'm going to quit. And I said, her name was Janet. And I said, Janet, why are you quitting? And she said, well, I'm going to have twins. And I said, well, okay. And she said, I can't travel. I said, okay, Janet, I've got a project at one of the insurance companies in Chicago. You won't have to travel. It's not a very interesting project, quite honestly, but just do it for a year and let's just figure this out together. So we did that and she stayed. We sold a project to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in Chicago. It was a four-year project to replace all their trading systems, and Janet worked on that. And as I moved up in the firm, I would always say, tell people, I'm thinking about putting this committee together. I'm thinking about putting Janet on it. What do you think? Or if a position opened up in consulting and leadership spot, I'd say, I'm not telling you to put her in the job. I just want you to talk to her. You know, just So that went on for a while. So over the years... You know, I've counseled many young people and partners over the years. Today, Janet's the chairman of Deloitte. So I'm still tied in with the firm, not in a very formal way. Still advisor to a number of the senior people. I haven't talked about my kids much, but my kids, uh, I'm very tied in with what they do. My son's very accomplished. He's built and sold four companies. He's a gallery artist. He's a renowned DJ. He does everything. And so I've been involved with a lot of his activities and his businesses. I have a daughter who's very successful. She's uh, an executive in Silicon Valley at a, a pretty developed startup. So I've been very involved with them and their business activities and their kids. My grandkids are, you know, very important to me. Um, so, you know, I stay busy that way. And then, as, and then people find you. Some of the businesses I was involved with my son in helping sell, some of the, some of the venture guys have gotten a hold of me. I have a knack for running consulting firms, so a lot of them have wound up in investments in consulting firms, and I've been involved on the boards or involved in selling um, some firms. So, for example, one of the firms is the premier consulting firm to improve education in this country. Marty, when you and I grew up, we each sat in the classroom. There was 30, you know, we, there was 30 of us looking at a teacher, and the teacher would teach us stuff, whatever, and that's just how it was. The company that I've been involved with, if you walk into one of their classrooms, there'll be a teacher with about eight kids doing some activity. There'll be two sets of kids, different kids, sets of kids on two different computer programs working on something. There'll be one group of kids in the classroom testing each other, and then another group of kids doing a different activity. And then they rotate, and how you set up the classroom and how you make that work, to me it looks like chaos, but... The test scores from kids who go through that experience is dramatically different. So I've been in probably seven or 800 classrooms in the last few, few years, just trying to learn a little bit about what these guys do to be able to help them grow the consulting business. But I've been involved in things like, in consulting firms like that. Another one I'm very passionate about is a consulting firm I've been active in for several years, helping them grow. And they're the premier consulting firm for water rights in the West so if you think about the biggest problem we have in the West, it's water. And these guys are the premier firm 
And so I'm trying to help them grow and expand their operations because we need their capabilities. And so it's, it's firms like that that maybe not the biggest ones, but the ones that may have the biggest impact. I'm not really good on not-for-profit boards and things. I don't have a lot of patience, but I do have a lot of passion for things which have a big social impact, may have a commercial element behind it, being involved in those kinds of and things. And can make a difference. Huge difference, yeah. I always ask everybody this, what brought you to Bighorn? Well, it was probably a big snowstorm, actually. I had jobs starting in around 2000 at Deloitte where I could live anywhere because I really wasn't tied to a specific office. And I can remember tr trying to fly back one weekend to uh, Chicago to get back. And I think from New York, I don't know where I was from. And I couldn't get in because it was a big snowstorm. Our kids had already were in college or off doing their things. And it took me a couple of days to get back. And I just said to my wife, Gail, I said, this is stupid. You know, it's like, why are we living here during the winter? And I said, where would you like to go? Let's just try something. And so we, we didn't like Florida much. We sort of ruled places out, Arizona, where the golf courses were at. She was, Gail's not a, wasn't a big golfer. And so that was just too far out. She had a friend who did, and she did some hiking here with her in the valley. So we said, oh, let's go, let's, I'll come out here. And we came out, stayed with some friends, not at Bighorn, just stayed in the valley a little bit. We knew a couple people up here, not well, from my country club in Chicago, Bobby Apt in particular. Then we came up and visited, and, you know, and Alan Scuba took me out for a golf game and all that stuff. We finally found a house and we fell in love with the house. Didn't know as much about the community and obviously, like everybody else, you get enamored with the house, but you really learn that the community is what makes Bighorn the special place. Who are the people that have had the greatest influence on your life? My grandmother who lived with us. My grandfather had died before I was born. She was a very stoic woman, never overreacted to anything, kept the family together, always hosted major family events. And so she was, she taught me a lot about, you know, a real classy person. My mom was unconditional support and also a great golfer. So I learned a lot from her. She's very impactful. My dad learned a lot from him, both good and bad. He expected perfection, learned that for sure. I also learned some things not to do, which is to never put things in writing, you know, whatever, repeated because, you know, it always come back at you. So that was an interesting one. My family is a little checkered in Chicago. Um, I'm actually a direct descendant of the first Orthodox rabbi in Chicago back in the 1860s. But I had some uncles who were my grandmother's brothers, one of which was my favorite is my uncle Irish. He was uh, ran the bookie operation of the Blackstone Hotel. He was pretty famous in Chicago. Told me what how not to be a chump, and I learned a lot of street smarts from hanging around Uncle Irish a lot. I, I already mentioned before I, I had a professor in high school, Bar McCutcheon, who learned a lot about math, but also just about life from him because of how he carried himself and how he made things interesting and how he was never afraid of difficult problem to solve and took pride in solving them. I thought that was pretty important. I think that I was lucky when I got to Deloitte because there was so many partners that were more senior than me that I could pull into situations and learn from them. I remember one guy was Ernie Dietrich. He 
never seemed to answer anything. He just kept asking questions. And I just learned a lot about before you say something, just ask another question, you know, keep learning something. Or as Arne used to tell me, you can't learn anything with your mouth open. So that was really helpful. A number of people helped me learn how to communicate in writing. They would take the things I had written, I thought I was very proud of, and rip them apart. And you start to learn pretty quickly that you're, you, know, you can't write very well. And, and people really helped me with that. Some people taught me how to run larger projects, how to run the business of consulting. There was uh, several guys who had a lot more confidence in me than I had in myself, who put me in really big, tough situations and just said, you, you can do it. You know, at the worst times, would just say, you're doing great. Just keep it up. It gave me the confidence to try anything, basically. They were really, a guy named Jack Shaw and Don Curtis, in particular, I think, you know, really put me in some tough situations, but, you know, supported me like crazy, made me who I am, basically. And again, in any of our lives, if we don't have that sort of support system, it's very difficult for us to have accomplished all that we've accomplished. What do you look for in people that work for you or that you work with? In terms of qualities, I guess if you're in the consulting profession, the first thing, thing you look for for a person to be successful is they have to be a good diagnostician. They have to be able to look at a situation and be able to figure out what's a symptom, what's a problem, what's a solution, and then how to implement it. And people get very confused thinking that a symptom is really a problem and therefore can never figure out how to make the change. The second thing is you need people that have some kind of structure in their mind to make the complex simple. So for me, as an example, there's only, I believe there's only seven or eight kinds of business problems in the world. That's all there are. It's either strategy, planning, organization, policies and procedures, systems, reporting, or communication. Those are the only problems. You may have inventory that's too high, but that's not a problem. That's a symptom that one of these other things is wrong. And if you can, because those are the only things you can change. So I think that's the second thing. The third thing is trust. You know, if a person's not trustworthy, you can't deal with them, so that's out. The next thing in terms of especially if you're looking for leadership, you need people who will make other people feel like champions. You know, Michael Jordan's probably the best example I know of, but Michael made other people feel like champions when he pulled them along on those Bulls teams and everybody followed him. I think followership is important. I think people that are coaches and not managers is important. If you're looking to make people leaders in our firm, they had to have grown other people to partner. And I always have had choices about people that are very safe hands, you know, will not get in trouble if we put them in leadership jobs. But I always went for the person that could make us spectacular. I'd rather roll the dice and be spectacular than just get along. I always wanted people that would raise the average. Like, why, why promote somebody if they're going to just barely make whatever level it was going to be, they should be a top half, whatever they're going to do, or we shouldn't promote them or hire them because you always want to be increasing the average of who we are. So those are some of the things I would look for. Your definition then of leadership is? Creating the dream of what's possible, telling people what needs to be done, and then not telling them how to do it.
Because once you tell them how to do it, then you've sort of stepped over the line and you're doing the job for them. And then, if a good leader, I believe the organization charts upside down, that leaders support other people being successful. People don't report to you and make you successful, you make other people successful. And so I think you've got to be a person that's going to support everybody being successful. And that even means the most junior person, because to me, the most junior person is just a, a future partner, just at a different stage of their development, not somebody who's who should be dismissed for not knowing them very much. The last question we always ask everybody, Jack, what would you tell the 20-year-old Jack Whitland today? I always talk about the word legacy because I've given this thought all, all my life, basically. So legacy, by the way, is not what you leave behind. It's what other people take away from you. And I always tell people that I don't care how old you are. You need to think, think about the legacy that you want because someday, 20 years from now, you're going to meet somebody. It'll be you. And the legacy that you have at that point will be based on what you had done 20 years earlier. I'm not sure I would have that much advice for the younger person. I think the experiences, both good and bad, I, I lived through were important to have gone through. Today, it's, it's a real challenge managing anxiety level. You want people striving to do well and trying to achieve. At the same time, you don't want them going over the edge and having other kinds of problems, which is a real social problem for us today. So I would, if I could have done anything, I would have tried to have reduce my anxiety level in some of the toughest, tougher situations that you'll get through it when you're dealing in business problems that have never been dealt with before. In very pressure-packed situations, you're not quite sure how it's all going to play out. You feel tremendous pressure on yourself. And so if I could have relieved some of that pressure at times, I think that would have been something that would have been helpful at the time. Thank you, Jack, for sharing your story both from a personal and professional perspective. We continue to be educated and inspired by all of these stories, and I wish I had these sorts of examples and mentoring when I was young. So I believe sharing some of these lessons with young people you know can be useful to motivate and give some examples to them that shows what it takes to be successful. Thanks to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wine for making these podcasts possible. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories.